Tony. What's up, Tony? Hey, how's it Good going morning. down in uh, Dallas? Dude, it's been cold. Yeah. It's been super cold. It has been, it's been like, got down to I think like seven or eight very briefly. And then uh, it's been like 14s, 18s, been working out in the garage at, at like 14 degrees, 18 degrees. Oh, wow. And Do you have any uh, like temperature control in the garage? I have this like teeny tiny $50 space heater. Mm-hmm that like it's electric and um it helps a little bit it it helps a little like if it gets really cold when i'm in there i'll just go stand in front of it for a minute and just warm my feet up and then go back (laughs) so like it helped like it doesn't really warm up the garage very much but like it has like hot air coming out of it that i can then stand in front of for a minute here and there so I, i have that but no in the new house that we're building we're gonna have like heat and air conditioning in the garage just for that specific purpose but uh no right now it's just freezing in there dang i've heard some people they get up if they work out in the morning and it's cold in the garage they'll like get up they'll go out they'll put us a heater right by the barbell so Mm. that the barbell warms up they go like i don't know make their coffee or whatever they come back out and the barbell's like ice cold so smart yeah that makes sense that makes total sense yeah I haven't been using the barbell as much. I've been doing more of the the mobility stuff, which has been like, it's insane amounts of strength training. It's just, it's, it's more body weight as opposed to, uh, you know, strength with a barbell or dumbbell, but, um, it's actually, the cold has seriously affected the mobility training because you need to warm up in order to actually like get that length. And so it's, yeah, it's been tough, but it's been good. It's been really good. And, uh, I don't know. As I'm doing it, I'm just thinking like this sucks, and I'm also thinking about how there are all these like influencers who are like, just get out there, it, it's cold, <laughs> and I'm like, fuck off, <laughs> like it is so annoying that you do that. It sucks. It's really it, like, yes, I agree, you should do it no matter what, but shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> how are you, man? Everything good with you? It's good, man. I managed to dodge uh, some of the snow here because it got down to. I don't know, the teens, which is pretty cold here. But mm-hmm. we also got a bunch of snow. And DC, we're just not used to snow here. I'm from Chicago originally, where it's like yeah. everyone's still out. They're driving. They, they're saving their parking spots with lawn furniture. But yeah, out here, it's like it snows a little bit. And like nobody knows how to drive. Like everyone <laughs> freaks out. <laughs> same, same here. Like, you know, I grew up in Mass. So when it, when it snows... It's normal. It's snowing for a huge part of the year. They've got the infrastructure for it. Yeah. It's like it, it's not an issue. But here in Dallas, if it snows like half an inch, it, it the entire the it, the entire state shuts down. Yeah. Like everyone, like there's like literally half an inch, and people are posting on social media like, "Nice, not going to work today," because the roads will be like super icy. Whereas in Boston and in Chicago, you have huge snowfalls and it's like, no, you're still coming to work. (laughs) But it's funny. Like I didn't understand it until I think like my second year here when they really don't have the infrastructure to deal with it, which made me appreciate how much work went into it in the Northeast. Like they have so much ready for that to happen and how to deal with it with the icing and the trucks and and there's and so much they, and, yeah. yeah exactly whereas here they just don't have any of it which makes me wonder it's like maybe you should get it yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like how many years are you gonna have to go through this and how many major issues are you gonna have to have before you're like you know what? let's just get a little bit of it like let's just try it for one year so here's my idea for that i feel like you should have that fund roll over. So just that one. So like, let's say okay. every five years you get like a crazy snow event, but you're budgeting for, you know, one fifth of that every mm-hmm. year. Cause that's the average or whatever. If you just let it roll over for four years because you didn't use it. Mm. Now you're prepared for the really big snowstorm that you know is going to come. Like right, it comes right. every X number of years, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm afraid that's just not how it works. 
bro, you but should run for idea. office. It's a great idea. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It's like we have the data. We can look ahead. Um, we can't predict <laughs> the future, but we can. Government isn't that efficient, Tony. You know that. <laughs> Let's make things as difficult as possible. <laughs> It's an election year. It's about to be crazy. It already is crazy. But dude, it's about to be crazy. It's an election year. Like if if World War Three was going to start, this is the year. <laughs> uh, yeah, seriously. Um, yeah, I'm a buddy. He got me a graphic novel and it's called uh, Berlin. Yeah, it's all about like the Weimar Republic and like pre-World War II Berlin. And wow. It's just this like massive graphic novel. Like it's a work of literature, but in like graphic novel form. And you just follow all these characters and like kind wow. of see how they're navigating. And there's like a cop that's kind of getting more and more right wing. And there's like a, you know, woman that's like a socialist. And like you kind of see all the, the different strata of yeah. society and just like how it all sort of falls apart and everyone wow. turns on each other. Mm. And it just feels eerily familiar in yep. this present moment. And yep. it gives me the heebie-jeebies. So, yeah, shit's going to get really weird. Yeah, man. it's. I think we're living in a time in which people can really start to begin the phrase, like, history repeats itself. Mm -hmm. And then I know there are going to be people who are like, well, that's not true. And then they're going to cite a quote that's like, well, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Mm -hmm. And, like, yes, it I would say that history repeats itself and it, we're not going to be nitpicky and be like, well, not exactly. Yeah. It's obviously the exact same event, but we're seeing the same things happen over and over. And I think what happens is that when times get really, really good, people almost just assume in their ignorance that, well, that wouldn't happen again. That couldn't happen again. Because times are so good right now. And it's funny. It's, it's just, it's interesting because that's when things get really, really bad. When things are amazing, when things are going really, really well for the overall general population, people get this odd level of comfort and safety around them that just assumes nothing bad can happen. Like that was a different time, different people, different world. No, same people same world and the same issues that were around in world war ii the same issues are cropping up right now like to insanely high levels of vitriol and hate and anger and, and incitement like it's it's really crazy it really is absolutely wild to be living through it and to think that in 20 years 50 years 100 years Kids will be reading about this time and what we're seeing now in their history books. Yeah. Like, hey, like they will show, I don't know if they're going to have books like they have books today, but on their tablet or whatever VR screen they have, they will show images of what people were shown today on social media and say, look at this propaganda. This is the propaganda That's that your right. grandparents had seen in the same way that we look at books now and in museums of the propaganda of World War II. And people don't realize that the stuff that they're seeing now is still propaganda. They don't they don't get it and they just believe it at face value. And it's just absolutely wild. Yeah. The broad reach and the instantaneous reach of social media. Yep. Everybody's like a uh, confirmation bias magnified. Mm -hmm. And then, yep. you know, throw on top of that, like deep fakes and AI, and it's just going to get. <laughs> oh, man. Deep fakes and AI. I it's hadn't gonna even get thought weird. about that. Yeah. That's going to get crazy. That's, yeah, that stuff is beyond my level of comprehension. That stuff is nuts. I've seen some videos of people using like deep fakes AI, and like it looks real. It looks real. It sounds real. Like, how in the hell is anyone going to be able to prove that it was or was not them doing something, saying something like it's just crazy. So some guy, he made a fake Joe Rogan podcast. 
series. Okay. There's like many episodes <laughs> of this. Um, and I think I think it's the Joe Rogan AI experience. Anyways, I'm sure you, if you Google it, you'd find it. But it's actually a few years old now, or it's a little old now. But he takes like chat GPT and has it write the script. Like No way. Like both people, the interviewer and the interviewee. <laughs> and then he uses these other tools to like generate the voices and it sounds like their voices and it's not it's not perfect like you can tell it's it's still kind of like bland and the awkward and and it's just not quite there but i mean it's like it's close enough there yeah (laughs) yeah i mean the fact that they even have that the fact that anyone can just make that now that's not like nsa type technology that's not like like government like anyone can do that in 2024 imagine by 2026 mm-hmm. imagine by 2030 like and then imagine what the government can do if that's available to the general public like imagine what the highest level security agencies can do yeah like, pff, that's just scary shit man yeah scary. i don't know how you inoculate a population against just like misinformation that could be so convincing as to not be distinguishable you know i just don't know yeah and then, and not, I mean, not to go down this whole rabbit hole, but whatever, we're already there. Yeah, right. There, there, there are people who are like, well, the government wouldn't do anything bad. I'm like, let's just use one example. We still don't know it. Like, I mean, I think I know what happened, but the government has still not just ever fully said what happened to JFK. No president has ever allowed the documents to be released, ever. So it's like, all right, so you're saying that the government wouldn't do anything bad. They wouldn't do it. But like, you realize that even after they were supposed to be unsealed, they were unlocked after however many, 65 years or whatever it was, no president has ever let them be released to the public. I wonder why. Hmm. Dude, they, they do not release. Like every year, like, like they, they take one line or a couple lines and they unredact it or whatever it is. But like, the mass like we still don't know what happened and what, the crazy part of that is in school like in high school we're taught well this is who killed him we're, we're told that this man killed jfk but we still don't know we they all of the documents explaining what ac- actually happened have not been unsealed isn't by any like a, by any senior president isn't there like a 50 year rule or something where generally things and they were supposed to be but, after 50. yes i think it was 50 or 65 i think i think it I forget which one it was. You're correct. But they were supposed to be declassified. And every time, whether it was Trump did this, Trump didn't let them out. And Biden hasn't let them out either. So it's like both sides, like neither of them let them out. I think Trump has said if he gets back in, then he will declassify them. But I think every city, any during any presidency, they're like, well, when I'm back in, I'll do it. But it's like, honestly, I think that if they did do it, there would be there would be mass hysteria for a little while, but then it would die down. I mean, there's been so many horrible things that governments have done, but yeah, gov- government is, uh, I don't think they're as good as a lot of people would like to believe in their idealistic world. And, and then there's foreign governments, you know, it's like it, disinformation yep. Yep. come from all directions. So yeah, that's exactly right. This is the fitness podcast, man. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. This really, this really did take a turn, didn't it? it's all good i like having these conversations (laughs) well speaking of fitness i do have a lot of great questions from the listeners let's do it let's go people have been dming you oh yeah yeah. love that love that so i've got a, a nice running list now and uh more people are are sending in their questions so please send in your questions i definitely want to get to as many of them as possible so first question is from AEC Fit Zero. Hi, I have a question for the Jordan Syatt mini podcast. What should I do if my grip strength on dumbbells fails earlier than my legs? For additional context, I usually do RDLs with a barbell in the gym, but for the next eight weeks, I'm stuck with just dumbbells due to travel plans. They are not as heavy as the barbell, and yet my grip fails sooner. Is it worth investing in lifting straps if it is just for these eight weeks? Thank you. So it's a great question. Thank you for asking. Thank you for for reading that off, Tony. Number one is I would say, yes, investing in lifting straps is a really good idea in general. The one group of people who I would say don't need it would be someone who's competing in powerlifting and they need their grip to be 
as strong as it needs to be in order to lift up the maximum amount of weight. I would never use lifting straps when I was a competitive power lifter. But for the vast majority of people who are not competing in powerlifting, for a situation like this, it's it's an, an amazing, amazing tool, whether it's lifting straps or Versa grips or whatever. I have lifting straps. My wife uses Versa grips. She's got these little pink ones that she really likes. Sometimes I'll use them as well, but either they're, they're great. What are What's Versa up? grips? Versa grips are a, I would say a more user-friendly, easier way to get much of the same benefit of a lifting strap. A lifting strap, it can be a little bit awkward for people to use if they've never lifted before. You know, you put one hand on, then you sort of got to finagle the other hand all by itself. Whereas the Versa grips, you wrap it around your wrist and it's shorter and it's some type of plastic material. It's much easier to use and it's it's very, very comfortable. So I, I actually really like them, but the nostalgia in me from using lifting straps, like sure. I, I just like the lifting straps. It's classic, like, yeah, lifting straps. I, you feel like a classic lifter with those. Versa grips are easier, more convenient, and they're comfortable, whereas cool. the lifting straps are not. So um, I think it'd be a great idea. I will also say that what's important to remember about the dumbbells versus the barbell, people will say, oh, it's it's less weight. Like It's less weight. It's It's, I guess you could say it's technically less weight because it is but it's distributed completely differently. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, for example, like if we're doing a dumbbell bench press for a, versus a barbell bench press, you'll never be able to dumbbell bench press as much as you could barbell bench press. With the barbell bench press, it's all on one bar. You have much more stability with it. Whereas when you go to the dumbbells, you're essentially, you're holding each individual weight with each individual shoulder. It's far less stability. It's way more difficult. So even though it is technically less weight, I would say that the stress is probably the same, if not even greater and more difficult. So uh, I don't get in the mindset of thinking, oh, well, it's I'm not lifting as much weight. I, I think it's far more difficult to use a single load than that, like to use like a dumbbell or a kettlebell than to use the barbell from that perspective. They both have pros and cons. And I love both of them, but um, it's almost it's short sighted to say I'm just using less weight. Anyway, in that situation, yeah, I think it would be worthwhile to get lifting straps. And um, if you have the extra income and they're not that expensive, but uh, if you have the the few extra bucks, absolutely. And then you can figure out other ways to use them in your training as well for the rest of your life. I think it's uh, it's definitely a good investment. Yeah. The other thing that that stuck out to me is it's she's traveling for eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And if we're thinking about fitness in the context of a lifetime. Mm hmm. You know, I I do wonder if, you know, just letting grip being the limiting factor for eight weeks isn't such a bad thing. Correct. Either It wouldn't be a big deal for sure. And another thing that I was thinking was if you wanted to, you could just make it an eight week grip strength phase. Exactly. Yeah. Just make it a phase where it's like, all right, I'm really going to focus on getting my grip stronger these eight weeks. And so that by, by the time you come back after eight weeks, your grip is five, 10, 15% stronger than it was before. And then that will allow you to lift heavier weight and you get all of the strength benefits that come from that. Like that, that is another option as well, for sure. Yeah. 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 Great points. All right. This one is from Natalie Galdames. And she says, for the Syat Mini podcast, I would really like to hear Jordan's thoughts on the whole barefoot minimalist shoe movement not just during lifting, but everyday life. Does he think there is a benefit to transitioning to zero drop wide toe box shoes only? And would he ever do it? Great question. And (laughs) I'll start by saying I hate shoes. Like if I could just walk around barefoot all the time, I would. I I love being barefoot. You hippie. Dude, I'm a super hippie with that. I'm, I'm a real hippie. You, you know, it's funny. So when I moved to New York City, I had been living in Israel for a while, moved to New York City to coach Gary Vaynerchuk. And when I was living in Israel, I was living on the beach in Tel Aviv. And I, dude, I never, I would literally walk around the city in Tel Aviv and on the beach, just no shoes. It's just, it's very, it's very common. It's super clean, whatever. I moved to New York City and I start doing the same thing. I start walking around New York City barefoot and I, put, <laughs> dude, it, it was so funny. I put this on my story on Instagram and this is before I had a big audience. I had like a couple thousand followers at this point. 
and I was like walking around and people were like, dude, what are you doing? Like get shoot. You're going to get a disease. You're going to like step on glass. Like it was bad. And so then I was going to bite you. It just wasn't good. And I looked at the bottom of my feet and it looked like I had stepped in tar. It was just not good. So then I was like, all right, maybe I should put shoes on, but I love being barefoot. I absolutely love it. So there's that. I will say anytime I hear about barefoot shoes, my brain immediately goes to the shoes that have individual toe spacers. Mm-hmm. That's just the what five I think. Finger. Yeah. yeah. And for me, and I understand like she asked, she spe- explicitly said wide toe box, which I'll get to mm-hmm. that in a second. The ones with the individual toes, like, I don't know. Those are a little goofy to me. Like that's just to me. Like, and if you like them, amazing. If they're, if you enjoy them, fantastic. But to me, it's a little goofy. I don't know how they feel, but it's like, I think about those socks that have individual toe. Mm-hmm. They're just not comfortable. It's a little mm-hmm. bit like, what the fuck is this? Like, it just, it feels weird. I'd rather just be barefoot at that point. I absolutely think switching to a wide toe box is a super good idea. Like going to a wide toe box, it's zero drop. Uh, yes, absolutely. Especially if you have to be in shoes. Mm-hmm. I'm in a very fortunate position where I don't have to be in shoes. Like I work from home. I try to work out barefoot unless when it's like 14 degrees. But even when it's like 14 degrees, I'm wearing my slippers outside. I'll wear socks and my slippers are, you know, they're huge toe box. And it's like not very much support or anything. So if you have to wear shoes, yeah, I think it's a really, really, really good idea. I think um, the more that your feet are scrunched up over a long period of time, the more negative effects you're going to have from it. I will say one of the reasons you've probably never heard me talk about this is because on the scale of importance and overall health and lifestyle, it's pretty fucking far down in terms of like, this is not the most important thing. It's not even in the top 10 or top 20 most important things. But I would say that there are many people who are their feet are getting crammed up. And then if your feet are hurting and you're having all these issues with your feet, and then that's making getting your steps in more difficult, then yeah, you can have this downstream effect of like, yeah, something that didn't start off being very important actually became very important because you're having these negative issues. So long story short, yeah, I think it's a really, really, really good idea. I don't think it's smart to have shoes or footwear that is scrunching your feet. I haven't worn that in years and I, I I would encourage anyone else to to not do that as well. Yeah. What, what is it about the wide toe box and the zero drop heel that so, makes it better? So the wide toe box, basically when, when you don't have a wide toe box, your feet are going to get scrunched in and then you can get so many issues, whether it's bunions or, or structural issues with that. But when you are able to spread your toes out, you get significantly more stability. And it's generally like, that's how your foot was designed. Your foot wasn't designed to be scrunched into this like triangle shoe at the, at the very end of it. And the longer you're, you're forced into something, into a position, your body will adapt. Your body will adapt to that. And then that's, it will literally deform in order to fit that shape. And then when that deforms, there was a revolutionary approach to training that came out. Uh, I think it was popularized by Gray Cook, insanely enough, probably 15, 20 years ago now, but it was called the joint by joint approach. And what essentially it means is what happens at one joint affects the other joint, hmm. affects the joint both above and below it. So if you have something wrong at your knee, if you have an issue at your knee, it's going to affect your ankle, it's going to affect your hip. If you have something wrong at your hip, then it's going to affect your thoracic. It's going to affect your shoulder. It's also going to affect your knee. It, everything affects one another. And, and a, a very simple example of this is we can look at basketball players when they started taping up their ankles a lot. Like they started super, 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 super taping up ankles, like really, really tight because they didn't want to hurt their uh, their ankles. Well, then they started getting these high ankle and knee injuries mm-hmm. because they they lost all of the mobility in their ankle. They t- they, they wrapped them so tight that they didn't have any mobility. So when they lost the mobility in their ankle, they took all the force in the knee and then the knee started getting having issues. So what happens at one joint affects the joints both above and below it. And it doesn't take a genius to understand that if you are walking incorrectly on your feet or if you have something really wrong with your feet, it's going to affect your ankle, it's going to affect your knee, it's going to affect your hip, it's going to affect your back, it's going to it affects the entire chain. We could go back to the old song like the knee bone connects to the hip bone, (laughs) right? It's like when 
your foot is your first it's your it's your mode of contact with the ground is the first thing that makes contact every day it's really the the only thing that unless you're doing bear crawls and stuff that makes contact every day it carries your whole weight on it and if your toes are scrunched up then it's going to make real issues with your gait which is like your how you walk which can have serious negative effects on your movement and your pain and and a lot of that so i like having a wide toe box or just being barefoot because that's how we're made. It's how you're supposed to move. And that is a fallacy. It's the naturalistic fallacy that basically, well, it's just how you're supposed to do it. It's like, that's how we're designed. And we can absolutely see very negative effects from people who have very, very tight shoes on for long periods of time. And, and yeah, so that's, that's why I would say wide toe box, super good idea. So we shouldn't all go out in uh, stilettos and do our workouts that way. I would not recommend it. <laughs> I would absolutely not recommend it for a variety of reasons. No, not not a good idea. Do you have a wide toe box? I switched over to all minimalist shoes probably about five years ago now. Oh, wow. Do you and like I, them? I love it. Yeah. So you've got that wide toe box, zero drop. You've got that. Yeah. I even, I remember, I, I forget what it was for, but I had to rent a tux uh, probably for a wedding or something. And it came with the shoes too. Oh, dude, those and shoes are the worst. I literally felt like I was being propelled forward when I was walking because yeah. I was just so not used to having that huge heel. Yep. And it just felt really like I speaking of like going up the chain, like it felt like my like back was like pushing forward. Yeah. Super anterior pelvic tilt. Yep. Uh -huh. Yep. Yep. Um, and it was just it was kind of it was kind of fun actually. It was like <laughs> ice skating or something i was like this is weird but yeah no i've i've been doing minimalist footwear and absolutely love it it's so I love much more that. comfortable i feel like my feet and my calves are stronger for it and more resilient for it and your calves yeah. are probably less tight you have a less tightness in your calves for sure yeah maybe maybe though i mean i do think so one of the things that you lose is all of that impact absorption um, cause a lot of these shoes are also designed not just with zero drop, but like a very thin, yep. uh, sole. So that yep. you have like ground feel or whatever. And so like running or like walking a lot on concrete, like you have to, you have to learn how to do that in a way that doesn't cause a lot of impact. And then what ends up happening is at least for me, my calves end up doing a lot of the work to spare my knees. Mm. Um, yep. at least that's how I feel yes yep. that's what i feel is happening um and so yeah if i haven't been like running or anything in minimalist footwear for a while like i notice like my calves just get real uh tight for it that yeah, makes so sense my experience has been like ease into it don't yep. just go like yep. on your your huge run in minimalist shoes for the first time you've never done it because like it took me a while to work up to yeah being able to just do everything I used to be able to do in regular shoes. Your gait changes. Like you're mm -hmm. when you've worn these shoes with huge amounts of of shock absorption, force absorption, with huge amounts of cushion, your gait changes because you can. So you can have this massive heel toe strike, and you can have a lot of uh, a lot of force going into the ground because the shoe is absorbing it. Mm -hmm. And then when you transition to zero drop minimalist shoes, it's like oh shit, like you can't do that. It's going to hurt your foot, which yeah. I think it's generally a, uh, I would say if you're going on long runs, I would probably wear something with more cushion. <laughs> mm -hmm. Generally speaking, there are people yeah. who will disagree with that. I would say, I think those shoes with more cushion are actually very good for long runs, but for everyday life, I would go zero drop wide toe box. But, um, for the long runs, yeah, that, cause then, you know, going on long runs is is super it's a lot of stress on the ankles the knees Just so the back, much impact yeah. yeah it's and so if you're really good and you want to like completely change your gait and probably what you've done your whole life and focus on more of getting like significantly lower impact that's okay but also if you're if you're a runner that's okay to have the cushion like it's probably a good idea <laughs> for the yeah. longevity of your joints no, that's how I've been feeling. And then, you know, this walking pad that I got is, uh, it's thin. It's made to be really thin, like fold up, put under your couch. 
So there's like no real shock mm. absorption in there. Yeah. And I'm usually on there barefoot because I'm like you, I walk around the house mm-hmm. just barefoot. Um, and that feels great. But yeah, I notice like I have to be careful with how I'm walking on there if I'm doing it for a long time because it's easy to just just overdo it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You'll notice like if you're going to heel toe and mm-hmm. it's like, oh, sh- your heels will start feeling it for sure. Yeah. It's like got to be more ball of the foot. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Love it, though. I think like I, I'm looking for that perfect kind of running shoe that's still minimalist, but has. Yeah. Absorption. Yeah. Um, yeah. So people who make those things, let me know. <laughs> okay, this one. She didn't ask to be anonymous, but I'm just going to abbreviate. This is from Emily K. Love the podcast with Jordan. I've been an IC member for a few months and have followed Jordan for forever. An idea I had for you guys to discuss is how to respond to family friends who are losing weight in an unhealthy, overly restrictive way. I'm proud of them for the weight loss, but don't want to glorify them for doing it in an unhealthy way. The balance between encouraging them, but also warning them about being overly restrictive behaviors is a struggle. Mm. That's an amazing question. Thank you, Emily. I appreciate your support. And I also understand where you're coming from. And I love the way you articulated this. And I think some of what you said can and should be used in how you bring it up to them in terms of saying how you're proud of them and and you respect them. Like these are all things that you can use to discuss with them. Before I really dive into ways to have these conversations, I think it's important to note that you could say everything right and they still won't change necessarily. I'm not saying like they won't change, but they might not. There's a really good chance that your single conversation will not cause them to change. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't have the conversation. I just want to set your expectations up realistically for you and for them. Because if in your mind you think, okay, I'm going to get this whole perfect conversation. I know exactly what I'm going to say. And let's say you execute it perfectly. Amazing conversation, everything well done. And then in your mind, you're like, cool, that was it. So they should stop now. Like that's, that's what should happen. And then they don't. And then you get really mad at them because they're still having their unhealthy behaviors. It's, it's a dangerous game to play for their relationship and for their health and longevity and, and their behavior. So that's number one, understand that just because you have a great conversation doesn't mean it was going to go the way that you want it to go, especially when we're talking about food and, and disordered eating behaviors. I'm not saying that's what they're having, but it sounds like that's what they're having with overly restrictive behaviors. These are severe, 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 severe. They can be severe, severe, severe mental and emotional health issues in which they might need to see a specialist. They might need to see either a therapist. They might need to see someone who who specializes in this. So with that in mind, I think generally the best way to to initiate this type of conversation, and this is assuming that you have a very good relationship with them, is say like, basically ask them to have some time alone with you. It could be as simple as, hey, like, let's go for a walk. Like, let's go for a walk. It could be like, hey, like, let's go get coffee, but ask for time alone with them. I wouldn't do it in a situation in which you're doing something else that requires your or their concentration. I would definitely save it for a time in which, hey, let's go do something together. So you're doing something together and where you can focus on the conversation. From there, I would ask them, I, I would structure it from the beginning of asking them questions. How are you feeling? How, like, what's going on with you? All of that. And then I would say, okay, listen, I, I want to talk to you because I'm very concerned. And this is only coming from a place of love. and. I just want to have an open conversation with you and be honest about it because I love you so much and say, I've noticed that you've lost weight and I want you to know I'm unbelievably proud of you. You've been unbelievably committed to it. You have been your, your patience and your dedication and your, your commitment has been truly inspirational and I'm beyond proud of how much work you're putting in. I wanted to bring this up because some of the behaviors around what you're doing seem very dangerous. And I don't know if you see them that way. You might not see them to be dangerous, but 
and I don't know how you're going to phrase this part for if I, if it was me, I'd be like, I have a background in this. I've studied this. Like I, I know that X, Y, Z behavior. You could say I've been doing research. You could say I've consulted with professionals about it, but like it, it seems very, very dangerous. And I wanted to ask, how are you feeling about what you're doing? Do you feel like it's overly restrictive? Do you feel like this is something you can do forever? Do you feel like if, for example, you could say, if I wanted to lose weight and I started doing the things that you're doing, would you say like, that's very good? Like, I think you should continue doing this. If I was having the feelings you were having about certain foods, would you say, would you encourage me to lean deeper into those feelings? Like if, and I, I'm going to make something up right now, but if they're completely eliminating all carbs and listen, like you've completely eliminated all carbs, you're not having them. You fear that they're going to make you fat. Do you think that I should lean into that? Would you encourage me to have that type of fear around the food? And oftentimes in this situation, they'll say like, they'll often be more, uh, well, no, I wouldn't encourage you to do that, but maybe I don't think you should have as many carbs is where they'll come back to. And you can be like, that's totally fine. But what about like, is there a fear around them? How do you feel about that? Do you want me to be scared of them? And framing it from this perspective can be nice just because they're not talking about themselves anymore. They're talking about you and there, you are also someone that they love. And from there, it can go in so many different ways. And it depends on the severity of what they're dealing with. I have very little context in regards to what they're doing, how restrictive they're being, where they're starting in terms of their body fat, how much they've lost any of this. It might be the next step is to say like, hey, I'd really love it if we could go see a specialist together and I want to come with you and I want to be there with you. It could be something where it's like, okay, they feel great. Well, I'm here for you and I'm support you. And you sort of just let them continue to do their thing. It could be anywhere in between that. But I think just bringing it up, letting them know you care about them and being overwhelmingly clear that you're not judging them. You are not mad at them. You are there to support them. That's the best thing because the the worst thing that can happen is they feel attacked, they feel judged, and then they start pulling away from you. And when they start pulling away, then they they start doing things so that you don't see what they're actually doing. They might actually get more intensive with their already uh, restrictive behaviors and you don't see anything about it and then they don't want to confide in you. So coming from a place of love, coming from a place of making sure that they know you care about them, coming from a place of you're proud of them and you will do anything in your power to help them while also making sure that they know it's like, hey, listen, this doesn't seem safe and I'm concerned for your health. So that's where I would come from it. Uh, that's where I would come from. There are so many variables and so many things that could happen, but you really can't go wrong as long as they know it's coming from a place of love and and you don't get too pushy. If you get too pushy, it's a really bad. If you start, well, you need to do this. You, you need to change this. You need to start eating more of this. And you're, you're fucked. Once you get into a place of like, you need to do this or you need to start doing this or immediately this needs to change, it's over. Like it's good luck. Very few people respond well to that type of a, of a intervention. And I wouldn't even call this an intervention to respond well to that type of a, of a conversation coming from a place of love, making sure they know that, uh, that you're concerned for their health and that you're there for them no matter what, and giving them an opportunity to explain how they feel. It's really giving them that space to, to talk about, well, this is how I feel. This is why I'm doing this. This is where I'm coming from. This is how I would feel if you were doing the same things that I'm doing. Giving them that space to be reflective is also super important. Yeah. And like you said at the beginning, once you've done that, it opens the opportunity for further conversation yeah. down the road, right? Correct. You could also, and this might be, might be overstepping a boundary, it might not, but you could, for example, and this is not a plug for my book. There are many other books, but like, for example, whether it's my book or Alan Aragon's book, or there, there are many books around flexible dieting, whether it's giving them a book or encouraging them, hey, like I found this amazing Instagram account or several Instagram accounts that you want them to follow. For whatever it's worth, I've thought a lot about this. You know, I have a daughter and I'm her father. So anything that I say will eventually be stupid and she won't believe me. <laughs> right. I, I know that I'm not, I'm not ignorant to that. So I know that as she gets older, she'll have influences from her friend group and TV and social media and whatever stuff they have by that point. And I very much thought about, 
how will I handle this when if I start to see her having some disordered eating behaviors or some bad negative body image? And I think that I will absolutely, and I don't know how this will work, but I will encourage her, I'll send her accounts of women who I think are inspiring women, who are strong women, who also have stories probably similar to what she is going through, because that's really what I think is most important is, or one of the most important things is being able to relate. And so my daughter will not be able to relate to me very much, just inherently. Whereas talk like hearing a woman who is like, Hey, when I was 14, I like, for example, Sohili, I like Sohili a lot. We're, we're very friendly. I've known her since like 2012. She talks about how, when she was younger, she would run all the time and she like, wouldn't really eat her favorite foods and she would over restrict. And by the way, like I did the exact same thing, but it's different because she can't relate to me very well because I'm her father and it's different when it's another woman. So I will deliberately send her accounts of people who I know are inspiring and strong and that she can relate to. Relatability is is such an important component. And I think now more than ever, especially now that I'm I'm, I'm in the middle of this process with Alyssa, and we're going through, we just published the second YouTube video as of when you and I are recording this. So when I publish it, the entire thing will be over. But looking through the comment section of the YouTube videos with Alyssa, the number one most used word is, this is so relatable. Relatable is that most common word because people feel like, oh, she looks like me. She acts like me. I can see myself in her. They, they can't see themselves in me, this short, bald Jewish guy who's been into fitness his whole life. Like, yes, they like the education that I give and they, but they can't relate to me, especially when mm-hmm. I'm doing a mini cut and I'm not really struggling with it because I know what to do. I've done it for years. I know how to do that. So to see Alyssa doing it, it's like, I relate to this. The relatability factor is super important. So being able to give them an account or someone to follow that they can relate to, not just education, but relatability is I think super important. Yeah. Should we link to So Healy? Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll, we'll put So He's Instagram in here. I think uh, that would be a great one, especially for women and especially for women who've struggled with body image and struggled with um, maybe over restriction and under eating. I think that would be a, a good one to link to, especially for younger women. I would say she's the first one that comes to mind for me when I think about when my daughter is like 12, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. 15 16 like she's the first one where i'm like yeah i would definitely link to to Sohi's page also shona virtue i would link to shona virtue's page i would link to katie cruz page and we can link to all of these in the in the show notes i've given this a lot of thought like which women's pages will i link to who who are very relatable very strong women people that i would want my daughter to look up to so yeah, those are probably three of the uh, Sohi, Shona, Katie, and I know I'm missing some, but those are three who've been very open about their histories and and what they do now that I think a young a young girl would probably want to emulate. Yeah, that's so cool. Thank you. So this is from Hulstein B. Hey Tony, I am just catching up on podcasts and hear that you are accepting questions. I'm working on counting macros. I've done it before. That's when I realized peanut butter had so much fat. (laughs) And it's got like the emoji with the wide eyes. Um, But now I'm working on taking it a little more seriously, like actually working at it. I'm really struggling on getting my protein in, yet keeping my fat counts in check. I feel so many protein options have healthy fat unless I just eat straight white chicken breasts and Greek yogurt every day. If my main focus is getting my protein in to build, restore muscle, is keeping my fat calories in check really that big of a deal if it's healthy fat within my diet, like eggs, avocado, nuts, etc.? Amazing, amazing question. And I love this question for so many reasons, but this is the prime example of why I say calories and protein. Mm-hmm. And I say, don't think about carbs, don't think about fats. And I also include fiber and what you should focus on in the Inner Circle app. You have your your calories and your protein and your fiber. And we don't encourage you to track your carbs or fats. And this is the prime example of why. Because you begin to way, way, way overthink it. And then you get worried. And you get worried about having something like salmon 
or whole eggs, which are just super high quality sources of not just protein, but food, but they're a little bit higher fat. So then you're like, oh my God, I can't, or avocado. This is something that when I was younger and I had disordered eating, I would be like, oh my God, I can't have avocado. There's so many calories. Avocado is one of the most nutritious foods you could possibly eat. And if you're scared of eating it, you have some serious issues going on simply because there's more calories and higher fat. It's one of the most important foods you can eat on a regular basis, assuming you're not allergic to it, or for some reason you hate it, which I couldn't imagine someone not liking avocado, but there are some psychopaths out there. But anyway... (laughs) Don't worry about your carbs and fats. And when I say don't worry about your carbs and fats, people say, well, then how do I know I'm not eating too much? You're inherently not eating too much because your calories are in check. Your Mm -hmm. calories are the limiter. They're the cap. It's impossible to eat too much if your calories are in check. It's physically impossible. So you've got your calorie limiter and you've got your protein minimum. So calories are a max, protein is a minimum. And then from there, you can fill the day with whatever you want. If As long as you're hitting your calories, it is impossible to overeat, right? It's just, it is. So if you're getting your calories, getting your protein, getting your fiber, your carbs and fats are inherently going to fall within a sustainable range, a suitable range. And the cool part about that is then you can say like, okay, if you want to track carbs and fats just to see how it makes you feel, you're welcome to. That's when I figured out that generally I prefer, like I feel better with a higher carb diet. That's like, I realized that I feel better when I have higher carbs when I started tracking my carbs and fats. But the cool part is I only had to do it for a short time before I was like, cool, now I know I'm going to emphasize the higher carb foods and that's it. So um, the benefit of tracking carbs and fats is you then get to see, okay, what foods make me feel best? Is it a higher carb? Is it a higher fat? Is it a certain type of carb, certain type of fat that makes me feel good? This is where the individualization comes into play. But especially when it just comes to fat loss and overall health, calories, protein, fiber, and then the quality of your food. That's it. As long as you hit that, you're good. There's literally, there's no need to overcomplicate it outside of that. Yeah. And I love what you said about like how you felt better Mm -hmm. with more carbs I mean, there's so many things where like people respond to different types of food in different ways. You know, they can't have certain things or it'll upset their stomach or, you know, they just won't feel like they're full or whatever, whatever those are for the individual. It's sort of like as long as you're within those, the protein and the calorie goalposts, you can tailor it to what feels good and, and makes you happy, right? Exactly. Yep. That's exactly right. I was trying to explain to my buddy, Mike, on our personal trainer podcast the other day, how eating higher carb makes me feel so much better. And I I couldn't even put it into words. Like, I just feel so good on a higher carb. Like, it is just, I feel light. I feel energetic. I feel focused. I feel strong. I feel happy. I like, I'm just like, higher carb is just, it's the best. It's the best, dude. It is the best. I like, I fucking love carbs. It's just, yeah. And some people, they don't feel that way with carbs and that's fine. I feel really bad for them because carbs, I think are the greatest, but if you don't feel great with carbs, it's okay. But for me, carbs are the way. I'm somewhere in the middle because, and I think I talked about this, but you know, for a while I was doing just like meats and vegetables for a lot of meals and I was intentionally keeping carbs like very low. Mm -hmm. And it felt good at first, but after a while, it just wasn't, I don't know. I didn't even realize what it was that I didn't like about it, but yeah, I think I was just like a little less energetic, a little less light. Like you said, as soon as I added just like rice back into that, yeah, it was just like, oh, now I feel like I have a full tank of gas. Um, and it Dude, wasn't a literally, lot. you said yeah. you're like, you're feeling less energetic, like, <laughs> and now you have literally carbs are the preferred fuel source for your body. Mm, So it's like you literally had more gas when you ate more carbs. Like this is like literal. Uh, A phrasing. Like like literal. Yet you had more energy, literally. (laughs) (laughs) That is the least surprising thing I've ever heard. I I love that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes sense. But yeah, if I if I take it to the opposite spectrum, like if it's all just pasta and and Yeah, then you feel like shit. Like, yeah, I just feel like I, I get like a 
energy dump and I kind of like get tired in between meals and then I get hungry again faster than normal. And so I just kind of found like, oh, yeah, like I still need carbs. I just don't want to overdo it. And that, yeah. that's what makes me feel good yeah. within that framework. You know, you also have to look at like if we're talking about pasta, for example, like no one or very few people is just having like dry pasta, right? right. It's buttered or oiled and with a lot of cheese on top and often sauces and it's like okay yeah that's not just carbs anymore now you've got a carb fat bomb and it's like you're a huge amount like that that's where people really conflate they look at one food source and they say okay well this is this is in that food. So then that thing that's in that food must make me feel bad without realizing what else is in that food. People Mm -hmm. do this with sugar all the time. People do this with like, Mm -hmm. Oh, like I'm addicted to sugar. I'm like, okay, well what foods do you eat? And they're like donuts. Like, okay, well yes, there's sugar and donuts, but they're also super high fat. Like tons, like tons. What else do you eat? Ice cream. Okay. Sugar, also a lot of fat. Like it's, it's not just that one thing. And that's when I'm like, if you were actually addicted to sugar, then you would probably be eating either straight up fucking sugar out of a bag, or you would be getting like the gummy bears or like the, those types of only sugar candies, Mm -hmm. which are not nearly as satisfying as something that is sugar and fat combination, because that is more, it's highly palatable. So when you have when it's like pasta, it's like no one's just having fucking dry pasta. It's right. what are you really having with that? So it's That's um, a really good point. Yeah, it's it's not just the carbs. It's the what are you having with it? And then if you're having pasta, especially if you're eating out, you probably had bread rolls before, right? And bread rolls probably with butter as well. Probably not just having a dry bread roll. Uh, and then probably also having a dessert at the restaurant as well. It's like there's there's so much that comes with it outside of just the carb, but people love to, oh, pasta, I had carbs. Yeah, you had fettuccine fucking Alfredo with that like massive like fatty sauce on top of it too. Like that's, of course you don't feel good. It's the least yeah. surprising fucking thing. <laughs> you, you ever watch The Office? Oh, I love The Office. You remember the one where he's like, he's doing the 5K and he's like, time to carbo load. And it's like <laughs> literally five minutes before the 5K and he gets fettuccine Alfredo and he's pouring like the cheese on top of it. And then he gets absolutely sick during the during the 5K. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it, that's what I'm imagining. People are having this fettuccine Alfredo with this like cheese on top and like, oh, the carbs are really what did me in. Like, no, motherfucker. You had like 140 grams of fat on top of those carbs. Of course you you feel like shit <laughs> they just they get it so right my yeah. favorite uh like fitness related office uh scene is yeah when, remember the guy who comes in with the the florida company and he's like the hr guy um, yes gabe I, gabe yes. yeah gabe and gabe and dwight are like in the in the break room or whatever <laughs> and they're just they just start talking about fitness and he's like oh i bet you're like a an arms guy aren't you like he's like i focus on the i focus on the core the abs and like they start going like back and forth and and it's just like all of like those kinds of like fallacies uh or misconceptions yeah it's just one after the other and it's amazing gabe is is such an i think he's a super underrated character he's He's legitimately like creepy and hard to watch, but like that's because of his acting. Gabe is like one of the only characters in that whole series where I'm like, it's so difficult to watch you because you're such an amazing actor. And that scene where he's like, I abide by like five principles, lengthen, tone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's just exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. He's like lengthen longer tone like it was just it was genius he was so good that's one of my favorite scenes of all time and the bloopers from that scene i don't know if you've seen them the bloopers from that scene are one of the greatest blooper reels of all time i'm I'm looking that up as soon as we get off this podcast (laughs) that will be my my ounce of joy for the day yeah yeah super good so yeah i don't even remember what we were talking about but Gabe. Oh yeah, carb, uh, carbs, carb, carbs, yeah, and yeah. fats, yeah. and just calories and protein and fiber. It, it, it just start with that. That's all you need. Awesome. How are you doing on time? What time is it? Uh, good. I got it a few is... more minutes. Want to do one more question? Yeah, let's do one more. We'll call this the bonus question. So we're past our 
hour. Let me try to find a trying to find a banger. I'm trying to find one that that <laughs> won't be a a thirty minute conversation. Uh, you know. Oh, well, good luck with that because I can make anything a thirty minute conversation. All right, in that case, let's just let's just go for it. So this one's anonymous. Hello, Tony. I love the podcast you and Jordan Syatt do. I had a couple questions in regards to strength training teenagers, specifically athletes. I coach a varsity women's basketball team. So we have girls from 14 to 18 on the team and want to incorporate strength training into their workouts, specifically during the off season. What would be the best exercises to do with the athletes and how often? Also, when it's time for preseason and then during the season, how much should we cut back in strength training? Mm. The main goal of strength training with the team is to make them stronger so that it overall helps their performance on the court. Thank you for everything. Love that. Love it. And I love the reason I was like, mm, when she's like, how do you like, what do you do when you cut back? That's I'm assuming this is a woman. I don't know, but I'm assuming it's a woman. Um, is it a woman? I was also assuming that, but let me double check. Yes. Okay. When she was like, do I cut back? I'm like, yeah, this is a good coach. That's a really good coach to ask that because a lot of coaches wouldn't even, a lot of shitty coaches wouldn't even think to say like, should we scale back or we just keep going? We just keep going harder, going harder. It's like, no, you have to scale back during the season. It's really important. Mm -hmm. So I'll start by saying it's, it's girls volleyball, right? Like she said, 14, 18 volleyball, basketball, basketball. Got it. Okay, good. Okay. I'll start large scale and sort of work my way in like from the outside in and sort of with her question in regards to how do you scale back in season is not the time to get stronger in season is the time to maintain what you've built during the off season and i'll say that depending on the sport and depending on the athletes i say maintain but usually they're going to lose some strength throughout the season and that's normal. That's totally fine. They're practicing basically every day. And on the days they're not practicing, they're competing. And you see this at high level at high levels too. When I was interning at Cresty Sports Performance, which is like the leading baseball facility in the world, this was the the principle that we followed, which was you get them strong during the off season. And then baseball is different because they got like 160 games or whatever it is. But like, and then you do your best to maintain their strength during the season, but they're probably going to lose some. And then you get them back, you try and get them stronger again. So when you know that during the season, your goal is to maintain strength as best you can, you know, you can, you can scale back and doing more and more and more is actually probably going to do more harm than good. Cause we have to look at the main goal. The main goal is high level of performance. That's number one. And then from there, under high level of performance, that means I think the next thing we have to look at is longevity in the season. Mm -hmm. You can't have a high level of performance if you're not playing, Yeah, which means that you have to do everything you possibly can to reduce the risk of injury. That's like absolutely number one, most important before we get into how do we get them jumping higher? How do we get them a better crossover? I'm not a basketball guy. I'm a short Jewish guy. <laughs> I'm not a basketball guy, but like, I know a couple of the terms crossovers, three pointers, whatever. Anyway, I know how to coach strength training for basketball. That's for sure. Anyway, number one is maintain the strength. And, and then number two is making sure that they can have longevity throughout the entirety of the season. So that means we have to reduce the risk of injury. So what I love about this is we're talking about strength training. These players should not be doing cardio. That is for sure, right? They get plenty of cardio during their practice and during their games. They're getting plenty of cardio and specific cardio for the sport when they're practicing. So I would not have them doing any cardio especially during the season, especially during the season, maybe some light cardio in the off season. We can talk about that. Maybe actually, yeah, I would have in the off season. We could have to do little bits of light cardio. And we'll talk about that. But the main thing is injury reduction and performance enhancement, strength training. That's like by far the number one, especially for this group of individuals. And for this specific sport, if we're talking about, softball or baseball 
I'd probably add a little bit of cardio in there. Like they're not doing that much cardio in softball or baseball, but we're talking about basketball. It's a fuck ton of cardio. So yeah, they're, they're sprinting up and down. Yeah, the court. it's a lot. Yeah. Soccer. They don't need extra cardio. It's one of the biggest mistakes I see soccer coaches making. Like, all right, we're going to do laps. Like why? Why are you doing laps? They play fucking soccer. They run the entire game. Like there's zero reason to be having your kids run laps like this. Uh, just stupid. Anyway, strength training, strength training, strength training, strength training. And I would say what what I would do is at, from a top down level is like, what are the most common injuries in this mm. sport? And so most common injuries, like ACL, ACL for sure. You've got knee injuries and ankle injuries generally are like the the two biggest issues with, with basketball. I initially thought I had heard volleyball and I was thinking, okay, so we're going to have to do some shoulder stability stuff that like overhand spiking. It can be like elbow shoulder. There can be real issues with that. But so that's a separate discussion for a different day. Basketball is mostly knees and ankles and uh, there's some back issues as well, but mainly knees and ankles. And I would say for women knees for sure, like especially young women, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 ACL injuries are a fucking problem like a big problem. So the cool part is the fix of it is super simple. We get them stronger using good technique. So I would have them in the off season. I'd have them lifting four times a week. I would have them do probably an upper lower split. So two days upper, two days lower. And for the lower body, I'd have them focusing on number one, like deadlifts, Romanian deadlifts, single leg Romanian deadlifts, hip thrusts, squats. These are all things that I would have them start with. But here's what I want to talk about. I'm not having them start with super heavy weight, especially if they never lifted before, especially at 14, 15 years old, 16, 17, 18. I'm assuming they've already had a couple of years of good training under their belt, but that's a big assumption, frankly speaking. So starting off with light, I would say dumbbells or kettlebells and light is relative, but let's get their technique right. Make sure they're using their hips properly. Make sure they're sitting their butt back during the deadlifts and RDLs for the squats. Make sure they're, they're, uh, they have good technique. I want to strengthen their hamstrings and their glutes and their quads. That's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Two times a week, lower body, two times a week, upper body. And I would say generally the schedule that I recommend is Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. So Monday and Friday are lower body. Wednesday and Saturday is upper body. I would not do three days in a row of training. So I would not do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, for example. I wouldn't do lower, upper, lower. I would try and give about 72 hours in between strength training the same muscle groups. So generally like Monday, Wednesday, or Monday, Friday for lower body days, and then Wednesday, Saturday for upper body days is a good schedule. If you wanted to do Monday, Tuesday, upper, lower, and then Thursday, Friday, upper lower upper lower again like that's totally fine monday tuesday thursday friday and have wednesday as an off day that's totally fine not a big deal but that's what i would get them strong i would absolutely get them strong i would again romanian deadlifts deadlifts single leg romanian deadlifts squats goblet squats lunges hip thrusts these are all lower body movements i would do i would also have them doing single leg work is going to help with this in general so single leg rdls for example will help with their ankle stability i would absolutely make sure that they're doing some some ankle stability training as well maybe something as simple as first get them good on the ground on one foot just mm-hmm. on the ground don't put them on a fucking bosu ball it's asking for an injury just standing on the ground doing that if you have an athlete who's a little higher level you can have them stand on an airx pad an airx pad is super soft it's squishy it's about an inch and a half on the ground and if they if they mess up and they fall then they just put their other foot down and it's not a problem it's not it's not wobbly it's just it's like you're standing in sand almost and so mm-hmm. it makes it a little bit more difficult it strengthens your foot strengthens your ankle i would have them take their shoes off and i would stand on that while they do some single leg work otherwise strengthen their glutes strengthen their hamstrings strengthen their quads by far the most important thing that you can do two times a week. That's really it. The upper body is up to you and there is some upper body work you can do, but I I would focus on pulling. So making sure they're getting some rows in, chin-ups, lat pull-downs, getting really strong with push-ups with good technique. But the most important for a basketball player is their lower body. Make sure that they're doing their best to reduce the risk of injury on their their knees and ankles. And then during the season, when you pull back, if you're doing four times a week when you are uh, out of season, when you're in season, I would do two times a week and I would reduce the volume by essentially two thirds. So let's say you're doing three sets of everything. Just as an example, you're doing three sets. Mm-hmm. You could do one set, one working mm-hmm. set 
is fine. So let's say you're doing trap bar deadlifts on, on Monday for your lower body day. If you usually do three sets of five in the off season, in the season, you work up to one set of five. That's it. One set of five done. And it, it's not an easy set of five. It should be a pretty difficult set of five, maybe like a seven or eight out of 10. Boom. That's it for deadlifts that week. And then from there you go into, maybe you start doing single leg RDLs. If you normally do three sets, work up to one heavy set of single leg RDLs. Boom. That's it. Next exercise. They're drained from the season. They're tired. They're more likely to get injured. You just want to maintain it as best you can. Do not do plyometrics. Do not do jumping stuff during the season. If you're going to do jumping stuff, you can save that for off season. But again, the main goal is longevity throughout the season. And they get plenty of jumping, just playing basketball. They get plenty of doing that. So yeah. it's, it's a risky game to play. I would just focus on strength, 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 strength. It's going to be the most important thing for them in terms of injury prevention, in terms of performance, the Pareto principle holds true here. Like, 20% of the exercises give you 80% of the results. It's like most people really want to have all these crazy exercises and all these crazy programs. No, you have a handful of strength-based exercises that you do. It's going to give you 80% of the results. And that's the vast majority of what they need. And I would imagine that the vast majority of these young women are not going to go to the WNBA and make basketball their career. So you also have to think about okay, what's the risk to reward with these exercises? And am I potentially setting them up for an injury that could fuck them up for their whole life? It's like, if you're working at a super high level high school for basketball that is deliberately trying to get them to play basketball for their career, yeah, then you can absolutely like start to play around with some plyometrics and higher level training. But if it's a regular fucking high school, like think about these young women's future and there's no reason to be like having them do drop jumps and, and, and insane plyometrics that could tear their Achilles and, and potentially really injure them for life. Yeah. So during the season, reduce volume yes, and stay Life. away from stuff that's going to be super high impact, high risk, high CNS. Correct. Uh, yeah. And, and, and off season cardio zone two, um, two times a week zone two. And I would try and make it a team effort, have them doing it with friends, not, not on their own. If they can get out and go on a walk as a team, maybe like a little bit of a jog, something like that. And then having them do maybe some, some hill sprints once a week. I like hill sprints because there's very low impact when you're doing sprints on flat ground, you get way more impact, but when you're doing mm -hmm. it on a hill, way lower impact. So maybe have them go out once a week as a team, do 10 hill sprints. Good done that's it that's all you need you don't need to do anything crazy awesome man that was that was rapid fire for a big question appreciate that's it. a that's a big question and i i sort of just scratched the surface but and, and hit like the major take-home points but i hope that was helpful so thank you tony thank you to everyone listening we appreciate you if you're enjoying the podcast please leave a five-star review it would mean the world to us and uh that's it have a wonderful week we'll talk to you soon <laughs>